0: The following episode contains major plot points that may spoil movies for some viewers. A spoiler warning is now in effect.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Abby Normal Podcast. I'm your host, Colin.
0: And I'm Aaliyah.
1: Welcome to episode two of the new year with us. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to talk about some fun stuff today. Well, for her, it's fun, not for me.
0: So as we hinted in last week's episode... We were going to do another franchise review. I think I may have expressed this sometime late last year, but I watched all, well, almost all of them, of the Saw movies from mm-hmm. the Saw franchise. Yep. The only one I haven't watched yet is Spiral which a lot of people have mixed opinions about, so I'm not in too big of a rush to watch it. And honestly, if I don't even know if we'll be able to have time to, because there's so much to unpack in this franchise that I thought there's nine movies in total, we can do three movies per episode, and this will be just a three-parter. But there's so much to unpack, and I'm worried that some of these episodes might go over the hour and 30-minute mark, so I'm going to just do two movies per episode, and this may very well be a four-possible five-part series. But don't worry, Colin, we will still do your birthday episode at the end of January, so that will be your little palate cleanser Yay. It, it, mid-break of the franchise review.
1: Wait, can I say something? What? yay i i want to say what i'm doing for my birthday but it's okay
0: if you want to surprise people you could surprise people we don't have to talk about it
1: because i still
0: have to watch the entire movie
1: i know but i just i want to tell people because it's going to be exciting
0: okay okay then so do you want me to get started on saw yeah okay question Uh... have you seen any of the saw movies
1: Yes, I have. I actually remember. Which ones have you seen? Uh, I think just all three because when we first saw them, me and my brother went to the movies to see them when it first came out.
0: So you've only seen the first three? Yeah. You haven't seen parts four through Star- I really
1: don't want to because it's just like, for me, it just felt like it was just the same thing.
0: I felt that way too, but honestly, the endings... tired of them, so... The endings kind of tie everything together, and they're kind of worth watching I all mean, the way through to the end. I mean,
1: no offense to anyone who loves the Saw series, but I'm not a big fan.
0: A lot of people have a lot of mixed reviews about Saw, and I get it. I really do. There's I guess a lot, I'm one of
1: those mixed people. Well,
0: there's a lot of things that are contradictory in this movie like the the whole philosophy behind john kramer's reasoning for doing these tests his whole philosophy and this whole thing is kind of askew he has these morals that don't quite co line with what he's doing and he picks his victims for different messed up reasons so it's very very hard to kind of like agree with what he's doing even though like to some degree, some of the people who do survive these tests do learn something about this. Mm-hmm. But overall, it's a very like contradictory type of movie. Yeah. And we'll get more into like the philosophy about it as we go on. But we're just going to talk about the first two today. Mm-hmm. And I do agree with a lot of people. A lot of people think that part three should have been the cutoff point for the franchise. should have been. But here's the thing. There's a lot that needs to be unpacked. That gets resolved in the later movies. So, I do agree with three being a, a potentially good cutoff point for a trilogy, but the other movies do have things to contribute to that I really think are important. So, I guess so. I do like the franchise. I thought it was really well written and well put together. And when we go into the behind the scenes stuff about the, each movie, I think it's going to be more and more impressive.
1: -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Is this for me? Is this like I? I like the first three. They were both exciting. They were fun. I cringe at a lot of the moments that they were like going through these games.
0: Oh yeah, these tests. Yeah,
1: I think the worst one for me, I hate more than anything. I think it might be this probably be in the second one is the the girl that goes through the the thing of needles
0: oh the needle pit
1: i hate there's the needle pit
0: there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff about that scene we're gonna get into and i think it's just amazing i don't even know
1: if i want to talk about it because it's gonna make me cringe i the feel whole like time.
0: i feel like it will make you feel less cringe when you hear about it so
1: well, oh my god it's just like i'm thinking to myself how is this girl going like how is this actress doing this scene with all
0: the I didn't write this down, but the girl you're talking about is Amanda Young. She's played by Shawnee Smith. She was pregnant during that movie.
1: And that baby didn't die?
0: No. But she was pregnant and she had her other child on set uh-huh. and nobody she didn't tell anybody during the making of this movie. And it wasn't until her daughter said something to the director was like, Oh yeah, mommy's having another baby and he's like, Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> that's how the that's how part two rolled. I bet
1: he came up to her being like, uh, excuse me, I just heard something interesting.
0: Also, I found a really good casting snippet oh. I think you'll appreciate for part two, so hold on to that thought.
1: Wait what, that, wait, what does that even mean?
0: We'll get to it when we get there. I don't okay? like you right now. Alright, so <laughs> Saw was released on October 29th of 2004. It has a runtime of an hour and 40 minutes. And it was directed by James Wan. This is his feature debut, which means this is like the first film he've ever, he's ever directed.
1: Oh my god, I'm scared for him. He
0: <laughs> and Lee Winnell, who plays Adam in the movie, both co-wrote this the screenplay. Really? Yeah. Wow. Isn't that cool?
1: That's yeah, chilling.
0: It stars Tobin Bell as John Kramer, Carrie Elwes as Doctor Lawrence Gordon. Lee Winnell as Adam, who, like I mentioned, is also the co-screen writer. Danny Glover as Detective David Tapp, which I never knew that he was in this movie. You know, Saw is one of those like cult classic films that everybody talks about and everybody likes to dissect and pick apart, but the one thing that they tend to gloss over when they talk about Saw is the fact that Danny Glover was in this fucking movie. I digress. Anyway. Michael Emerson as Zepp Hindle and Shawnee Smith as Amanda Young. Casting director Amy Lippins chose her ex-husband for the role of Mark. Now, I don't know if that's Detective Mark Hoffman who would go on to be a much more prominent role in the later films, but that's who she casted. Anyway. So the synopsis goes, photographer Adam and oncologist Lawrence Gordon regain consciousness while chained to pipes at either ends of a filthy bathroom. As the two men realize they've been trapped by a sadistic serial killer nicknamed Jigsaw and must complete his provised puzzle to live, flashbacks relate the fates of his previous victims. Anything you want to comment on before we go forward? No. All right. I'm
1: good. Let's do this.
0: I do want to get into a little bit of pre-production notes. So, Lee Winnell, like I mentioned, came up with the idea of giving John Kramer a brain tumor while spending time in a neurology ward for anxiety and headaches. Mm. He said that undergoing numerous tests and expecting bad news made him reflect on his own mortality. He used this experience in creating a character who only had a few years left to live.
1: It's interesting. It's an interesting premise right there.
0: I always find it interesting when people apply real world experiences to their stories it helps get that sort of authentic feel
1: but you also get the vulnerability too right yeah and that's, that's and what, that's
0: something that goes into it later on in the movie. And that's what
1: people like about that because you got the realism right there. It's not make believe, it's not fake. You know, you get those real motions in with the character in the movie. Right. So I that's why I actually enjoyed the first one because right. of that.
0: This film was shot in eighteen days.
1: Which that's pretty damn good. Right. For all those scenes, like eighteen days? Wow. Right. I was gonna say, isn't the first movie like a lower budget?
0: It's very low budget. In fact, I read somewhere that James Wan didn't really want like a flat out fee to be paid to be a director. He wanted like a certain percentage of the royalties. Oh. And there's actually an issue with Carrie Elwes' pay because of this. Because like most people in the movie industry, when you hire actors, you pay them a flat out fee. And then there's usually sometimes royalties that come with it. In their performances.
1: Well, he didn't get that Princess Bride money, so... Well,
0: he didn't really get much of anything from this movie. You know, he got paid a very low flat rate fee, which he wasn't happy with. He did the movie, hoping to get some royalties out out of it, and they weren't too sure yet how successful this movie was going to be, so he sued them.
1: Yeah, but it's like one of the biggest movies, like in horror. So, I right. wonder if Carrie does have any uh, percentage or ro- royalties to this movie now.
0: It would be interesting to know what that is, but let me break down how much of the 18 days was spent shooting certain scenes. So, the bathroom scenes were shot in chronological order to give the actors a sense of how to feel and react to what was happening. So, normally when you shoot a movie, you write your screenplay, you write your script, and then you create what's called a shot list. Do you know what a shot list is, Colin? Uh, no. Okay, so for those of you who don't know what a shot list is, when you watch a movie, obviously there's a sequence of sh- shots and scenes that flow in a certain order to tell the story. Mm-hmm. That's not how movies are shot. Movies are, depending on the scheduling, and the timing, the budget, you have to work with what you've got in day-to-day. So if you're shooting scenes like at nighttime, You have to shoot at night.
1: Yeah, you got to get those before the sun comes up.
0: Right. There's a lot of components as to why certain scenes are shot in certain times of the scheduling, but that's why you have your shot list. Mm -hmm. So like on these days, we're shooting these scenes. And on these days, we're shooting these scenes. Like for another point in this was Danny Glover completed all of his scenes in two days. Really? Really? Yeah, and I think another thing, too, that well, that's why his role gets glossed over in this movie is because, and this is my estimation, I'm not sh- quite too sure how much screen time he really has. He probably didn't get
1: paid much, either.
0: I think it's safe to say he probably had about 20 to 25 minutes of screen time in that movie.
1: Yeah.
0: Out of an hour and 40 minutes. Well,
1: here's the thing, too, and it's kind of like that with John Candy when he filmed Home Alone mm-hmm. and he had that cameo appearance. He shot everything that he had to for the movie all in 24 hours. Right. And he didn't even want to, and he didn't get paid for it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that kind of really shows how much of dedication and time that those actors will do if you can get done with everything in that time.
0: Right. And Shawnee Smith shot all of her scenes in one day as well. Holy shit. Monica Potter and Mackenzie Vega who play Lawrence Gordon's wife and daughter yeah. shot all their scenes in three days. So it's a very like condensed you know, for an hour and forty minutes, it's a very condensed movie. I mean, the entirety of it takes place in this room with Lawrence and Adam, but yet you have all these other components happening outside of that room. You have flashbacks. You have what's going on in the present time. You have all this other stuff to factor into it. Mm -hmm. But the real focal point here is that bathroom scene. So all of the bathroom scenes are shot in chronological order. So it's like, okay, on day one, we're shooting bathroom scenes one through five and like so on and so forth. Just to kind of give each actor a perspective of what is happening and like, it makes it feel like it's happening in real time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is something that we get fooled a lot of when we watch the later movies, but we'll get to that in like part two. So I'm going to butcher this pronunciation of the name and I apologize if I do, but Oren Cools was one of the film producers playing Shawnee Smith's dead cellmate. Really? Yeah.
1: Wow. That is interesting.
0: Due to budget, there were no exterior shots in the film because the production team could not afford them. The car chase scenes were filmed in the garage of the warehouse by turning off the lights, adding some fog, and shaking the cars while filming from the front. F- film screenplay was written in 2001 as a calling card for director James Wan and Lee Winnell trying to break into Hollywood. They shot a low-budget short based on a scene in the film, and this proved successful enough to attract the attention of Evolution Entertainment they immediately formed a horror genre arm called Twisted Pictures and gave Juan and Winnell a small budget. Huh. Now, I don't know what budget that specifically is, but obviously it's a very small budget, like I said. Director James Juan wanted the camera movements to reflect the two main characters' emotions and personalities, while filming Dr. Gordon with a steady controlled shots and Adam as handheld shots to capture their emotions of the situation. Juan also built the Jigsaw doll, yeah. who's named Billy, apparently. I don't know why we have to give that doll a name, but we're going to give that doll a name, and it's Billy. The film contains many references to the films of Italian horror and giallo director Dara Argento. The creepy painted puppet is a reference to Argento's deep red, while the unseen killer's black gloves are one of Argento's trademarks that can be seen in almost all of his films. Yeah. According to the DVD commentary, director James Wan stated that many of the scare scenes in the film were nightmares he and Lee Winnell had as kids.
1: Well, at least they put it from on paper and put it into the screen.
0: Mm-hmm. Remember I mentioned earlier about Carrie Elwes and the lawsuit? Yeah. He did file a lawsuit against the producers and the production company because he only received a nominal salary with back-end revenues. He claimed to have been promised at least 1% of the profit, which would be considerable since the movie earned over $100 million globally. The case was finally settled out of court, but due to the disagreements, Elwes chose not to be involved with any of the sequels until Saw 3D, which was released in 2010. Huh. So he does return, which we'll get to later. But anyway, in post-production, director James Wan discovered that he did not have enough shots or takes to fill out most of his scenes. So he and editor Kevin Grutert, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, and I apologize if I am mispronouncing it. Nice going. But they created their own filler shots by doctoring some of them to make them look as if they were filmed through a surveillance camera.
1: That is intriguing.
0: I'm going to get into the plot now,
1: oh, God. but
0: is there anything you want to talk about just from those instances?
1: No, I think you got everything. All right. Yeah.
0: So the plot goes, a photographer named Adam awakens in a dilapidated bathtub. I believe that's the word that I'm citing. I don't know if that's it. With his ankle chained to a pipe. Across from the room is oncologist Dr. Lawrence Gordon, who's also chained and between them is the corpse of an apparent suicide victim holding a revolver and a micro-cassette tape. Both men find a tape in their pockets, and Adam retrieves the recorder. Adam's tape urges him to survive, while Gordon's tells him to kill Adam by 6 o'clock, or his wife Allison and daughter Diana will be killed. Adam finds a bag containing two hacksaws inside the toilet. Both men try to saw their way through their chains, but Adam's saws break. Which, I, another thing I forgot to mention in this part. So, those hacksaws, when they first saw them, they have to lightly do it. Carrie Elvis's character, he had to lightly saw his chain because those hacksaws are really brittle, which is why Adam's broke. Gordon realizes that the saws are intended for their feet and identifies their captor as the jigsaw killer. A serial killer testing his victim's will to survive through lethal traps referred to as, quote, games, whom Gordon knows of because he was once a suspect. Five months prior, Gordon, while discussing the terminal brain cancer of a patient named John Kramer, was interrogated by detectives David Tapp and Stephen Singh, who found his pen light at the scene of one of Jigsaw's games. Gordon's alibi cleared him, but he agreed to interview the testimony of heroin addict Amanda Young, the only known survivor of one of Jigsaw's traps, who had been forced to kill and disembowel a man to obtain a key to free herself. After Gordon's release, Tap and Singh find Jigsaw's warehouse using the videotape from Amanda's game, where they apprehend Jigsaw and save a man from a trap. But Jigsaw injures Tap and escapes. Sing pursues Jigsaw down a hallway where he accidentally triggers a shotgun trap and is killed. Which was very shocking. I didn't know that that was happening. Yeah. When he shoots Jigsaw and Jigsaw goes down, it's down like this long narrow hallway. And Sing goes to slowly walk over to the body. And I'm like, this seems way too easy. And then sure enough, he's walking through this archway or this threshold Mm -hmm. and it's triggered by a wire and there's all these like rifles above him so the wire triggers the shotguns and they all shoot his partner and he dies which is very shocking anyway um in the present allison and diana are held captive at their apartment as their captor watches adam and gordon through a hidden camera the house is simultaneously being watched by tapped who, after being discharged from the police following Singh's death, has become obsessed with the Jigsaw case and remains convinced that Gordon is the killer. Meanwhile, Gordon finds a box containing two cigarettes, a lighter, and a one-way cell phone. He recounts his abduction in a parking garage by a pig-masked figure. Adam recalls his own abduction where he returned home to find a puppet in his darkroom, where he stored photos of Gordon. Allison, who's being held at gunpoint, calls her husband and warns him not to believe Adam. Adam admits to Gordon that he was paid by TAP to spy on him and reveals his knowledge of Gordon's affair with one of his medical students, whom he had visited the night before he was abducted. Or actually, the night of his abduction. Okay. Gordon Um, deduces that the affair is the reason why he is being tested. Adam finds a photo of Allison, Diana's captor, whom Gordon identifies as Zepp Hindle, a hospital orderly. Once the clock strikes six, Zep, seeing that Gordon is has still not killed Adam, moves to murder Allison and Diana, but Allison frees herself and fights him. The struggle attracts Tap's attention and he saves Allison and Diana before chasing Zep to the sewers, where he is shot in the chest after a brief fight. Gordon, only aware of the gunshots and the screaming, is shocked and loses reach of the cell phone. In desperation, he saws off his foot and shoots Adam with the corpse's revolver. (laughs) Zep enters the bathroom to kill Gordon, but Adam, having survived the gunshot, bludges him to death with a toilet tank lid. Gordon crawls out of the bathroom to find help while Adam searches Zep's body for a key. He finds another tape, revealing that Zep was just another victim of Jigsaw, following rules to obtain an antidote for a slow-acting poison in his body. The corpse in the room rises and is revealed to be John Kramer, who is the real Jigsaw killer. He tells Adam that the key to his ankle chain was in the bathtub, and it went down the drain when Adam had first awoken and drained the water. Horrified, Adam attempts to shoot John with Zep's gun, but John electrically shocks him through his chain, exits the bathroom before sealing the door, leaving Adam to die. Fuck. Yeah.
1: I remember that scene where he rises up. That scared the fuck out of me. That
0: is the biggest fucking plot twist in the whole fucking horror franchise. I mean, he makes
1: M. Night Shyamalan movies that scene look like regular films. It's
0: such a mind-blowing thought. I mean, I already knew that going into these movies that John Kramer was the dead guy in the middle of the room. Mm -hmm. And that he had always been there.
1: I never knew that, but yeah.
0: But... Watching it all play out the way it did and knowing that he had been there the whole time to listen to them Mm -hmm. was shocking as shit. I mean, for lack of a better word. I mean, it's just shocking. It's so, like, deviously well planned out. Mm -hmm. Like, this guy thinks of everything.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably not his first rodeo, but yeah.
0: Yeah. The overall goal is that one of them is going to survive this. And unfortunately for Adam, it happened to be Gordon, who chooses to saw his foot off and crawl his way out of the room. Yeah. Which, that's something we didn't never knew what would happen to him until in one of the later movies. Which, yeah, it could have been addressed sooner, than part 3D, which would come out, like, what, several years later? hmm It all just ties together, which I think is really, really well put together. We'll find out in the next movie that John Kramer doesn't work alone. So when we realize that Zepp is assisting in all this stuff, I mean, at first we think he's the killer. But... Because we think, yeah. because he's holding Allison and Diana hostage, he's watching the cameras. Yeah. We think that he's the guy who's doing all this. Mm-hmm. And it turns out to be John Kramer, which a lot of people say that when you watch those earlier flashback scenes of Gordon at the hospital and Zepp comes up and talks about how the patient that he's referring to, because he's showing everybody John Kramer's brain scans. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, oh, he's a brilliant patient or he's a brilliant man, you know, and they go to his bedside. The drawings he has on the tables are some of the mechanisms that he uses in later tests hmm Like the jaw trap that he puts on Amanda.
1: That thing is horrifying. It is horrifying. I would hate to have a jaw trap on me.
0: Yeah. You know how it works?
1: Yeah. I'm... It's like a
0: reverse bear trap is what essentially what he calls it.
1: So you have to close the thing, right? No.
0: It pries your jaw wide open.
1: Oh, my God. Sounds like a moral combat thing. Yeah. Like I said, a mm-hmm.
0: reverse bear trap is when you pry the jaws open Mm -mm. And there's a trigger in the center that if you step on it or if it goes off, it snaps it shut. Yeah. On whatever stepped in that trap.
1: And I'm... This
0: does the opposite. So, so, there's a mouth... Yeah, there's a mouthpiece that goes into your mouth. And you've got the brace. You've got the headpiece that goes around your head. The bear trap is what pries it open.
1: This is why I hate this. I hate these films because they're just what well, traps like this are just so cr- cringe and just like yeah, just when you do it wrong, it's so nerve wracking.
0: And that's the thing too. Is like <clears throat> mm. there's a reason why he picks these people. It's been debated and assumed over and over again. But with Amanda Young,
1: they've done some naughty things.
0: Yeah, the whole philosophy behind it is that he picks people who he feels are not appreciative or grateful of life. Yeah. Obviously, being a cancer patient, being told you only have a certain amount of time to live can really take a huge toll on one's mental health. So realizing that he's probably spent his life trying to do his best to be a good person or to live a successful life in general, Mm -hmm. he probably looks at other people and sees that, you know, these people are not grateful for what life has to offer. Exactly. So like people like Amanda who do drugs. And I'm not shaming anybody for no. their drug abuses i mean drug abuse or substance abuse is an addiction an addiction is like a disease it's not uncommon but it happens you know and does, yes <clears throat> but the people like john kramer people who use drugs are he feels are not being appreciative of their life
1: mm-hmm.
0: so he puts amanda through this test she survives and the whole purpose of this is that If the human will is strong enough for you to persevere through this challenge and save yourself from dying, Mm -hmm. then you have a second chance to live life in a a more grateful way, I guess, is what he's going for. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, I feel like with this, it's definitely it's definitely a big learning lesson for these people. Right. You know, try to appreciate, like you said, a life for what it is, you know, and just... He's kind of like karma.
0: Mm-hmm. He's
1: karma for these people to, to teach them a lesson about what is the right thing to do and what's not the right thing to do. Right. What is the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing?
0: Right. And when we look at another example is Lawrence and Adam... I mean, these two were selected for reasons that were never really fully addressed, but we can all assume at this point in time it wasn't just the affair that landed Gordon or Lawrence in this situation. It was the fact that he worked too much and it pulled him away from his family a lot, or he was not a good person as a doctor because he had poor bedside manner. I mean, the way he talks about John Kramer's brain scan Mm -hmm. to his students when he's not even like six feet away from him is pretty shitty. I mean, you're kind of making somebody feel less than a person because to you, they're just another patient with another illness that you need to treat. That's a pretty shitty way of going about your job. Mm -hmm. People who go into medical profession should want to help people and should want to be in this position, not just because they feel like they have to in order to be successful. Which is what Lawrence is. He's a, he's a successful doctor, and he takes care of a lot of people. He's always on call. He's always getting called away to work to do a surgery of some kind. And, of course, you make a lot of money that way. So, to someone like John Kramer, like we said, is probably a pretty strong reason to want to pull Lawrence into this situation. Mm-hmm. Make him appreciate what he has. His marriage, his child, his life, and his career. A career that, to most people, would want you to make you feel humble and honored to be doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a noble profession. It is. Right. But he doesn't see it that way. Well, which, he... again, is the reason why he's there. Adam, on the other hand, I feel for because his reasoning is, I was hired by this detective to follow Gordon. And now I'm chained in this room with him. Exactly. For no reason. Now, it's not to say... Adam's totally innocent. He does have his vices, okay? Mm-hmm. But I have I have an idea. Because I saw somebody on TikTok and I can't remember what their name or user handle was. But she's another person who, like many, think that John Kramer's views and philosophies are a little bit warped. Because in order for John Kramer to know a lot about his victims, to select them to be part of his tests... You have to do surveillance, you have to spy, you have to snoop, you have to be able to do background checks and all this stuff, which is essentially what Adam is doing, Mm -hmm. right? And we think that, oh, because Adam was spying on Lawrence, that's why he's there. I don't think that's just it, though. Yeah. Now, in later movies, we see a lot that whenever detectives take on the Jigsaw cases, they don't last long. Mm -mm. They either end up getting killed by him or abducted by him, or in even one instance becomes his apprentice exactly so nobody in the police department is safe from being either a victim or an accomplice to jigsaw's traps right right so i think with adam obviously like i said he was hired by david tapp to spy on gordon gordon is the only suspect right now that the police believe is the jigsaw killer Mm-hmm. David Tapp got way too close to apprehending Jigsaw, and that was a threat to John Kramer's legacy. The whole philosophy in the movie is, ends up becoming his legacy. Because by the end of the third movie, he's trying to mold Amanda to carry mm-hmm. out his legacy. That's why he tests her in the third movie. But because Tapp came so close to ending it all too soon... That's why he killed. He tried to kill him when, he, when they first apprehended him. That's why he killed Singh, And that's why he got rid of Adam. Because Adam would have eventually found out that Lawrence is not Jigsaw. And that would have deviated his attention from Tap. True. So I think that's why Adam was chosen to be part of this test too. Not because he was spying on somebody, but because of who hired him to spy on somebody. Okay. That's just my philosophy. You're cute. You're
1: cute when you talk about stuff like this. What do you think? I think when I first saw this movie, I was definitely intrigued by it because i never really seen anything like this. So when you watch a movie like this, it's like, wow. it's just like It was like a whole new level of horror mm-hmm. of watching it. And that's why I really liked the movie. And me and my brother, we were the only ones in the theater besides this guy besides this other person and it was so fucking weird as we're watching this film this guy pops out of nowhere in Mm -hmm. the dark and he sits down like a couple of uh, feet ahead of us and he takes off his hat his hat and he's got a weird kind of like squared shaped crooked head with like hair coming out in the sides and it's bald up here and me and my brother are like what the fuck are we doing like what the fuck are we watching we're watching this movie and the and watching him just made this movie so much more scarier.
0: It is very off putting. I mean, it was very off
1: putting when we when we saw that.
0: There's a lot that goes into these traps too. I mean, if, even if you don't. Well, I
1: was talking about the guy too, but well, yeah.
0: I mean, even if you <laughs> don't even think too much about like Amanda's trap and Gordon's and Adam's trap. You know mm-hmm. there there are other there were other people other victims who fell prey to Jigsaw's tests or games or whatever and they all had their reasons. They, of course they don't go too far into detail as to why they were chosen. They just go into detail about what happened to them. They woke up in this room. One of them had to crawl through a cage of barbed wire to break free.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Another one had to get a combination code to remove his shackles out of a room that was coated in a flammable gel. Mm-hmm. That was not only all over the walls, all over his body, all over the floor. And he only had one lighter or match to work off of. Yeah. It's very, very, like, stressful. I don't know if I can ever do something like that. It would it would be too much stress.
1: I mean, it would be a lot of stress for me. I, w- I couldn't do it.
0: Yeah. Shall we move on to part two? Yes. So, in the first week of the movie's production or premiere, mm-hmm. it got approved for a sequel.
1: Which is crazy, too, right? Yeah. yeah. Well,
0: it did so well. And the marketing for it, for what it for what it seemed, was pretty good.
1: Yeah. So,
0: Saw Two was released on October 8, 2005, almost a year <sighs> after the release of the first film.
1: Yeah.
0: It has a runtime of an hour and 35 minutes, and this time it was directed by Darren Lynn Bozeman, which was also his feature debut. So this is his first film he so directed.
1: I, so I guess they're doing this with Saw films. Like, every director comes in, it's their first time.
0: Well, Darren Lynn Bosman would go on to direct parts 2, 3, and I mm-hmm. think 4. I And Spiral, too. So he also directed Repo the Genetic Opera, which I love. Oh, no. This was producer Greg Hoffman's final film. He died unexpectedly in December of 2005. It stars Tobin Bell as John Kramer. yeah, Henry Rollins? I, I will get there when I get there. Can you not read ahead and stop looking at my notes, please?
1: Uh-oh.
0: It stars Tobin Bell as John Kramer, Shawnee Smith as Amanda Young, Donnie Wahlberg as Detective Eric Matthews. Ew. No, not that Eric Matthews. Fine. Eric Knudsen as Daniel Matthews. Emmanuel Vogueer as Addison Corday, I believe is her last name in the movie. And Beverly Mitchell as Lauren Hunter. And yes, Henry Rollins was originally cast to play the role of Xavier. Due to scheduling conflicts, he was replaced with Frankie G.
1: This is why this movie was so much shit. It was really bad because if Henry Rollins was in this, this would have been a blockbuster.
0: Do you even know who Xavier is in the film? Yes. Who?
1: He's one of the victims.
0: What is his biggest part in the movie?
1: Is he the guy with the... The white tank top who was it's like I mean the, to... the
0: wife beater and the muscles? Yeah. Yes. That's... That
1: was supposed to be Henry. He,
0: he is the douchebag who throws Amanda into the needle pit.
1: You know what's funny? Because that I... was
0: supposed to be his test. Time out. Okay.
1: You know what would be so funny? What? If Henry Rollins... He would be much scarier as that role than Frankie G would be. Like, literally, the man, even on stage when he was in Black Flag, he was terrifying looking like the crowd... Did not want to fuck with him. So just imagine him in this movie. No person, even that little boy, would piss his pants.
0: It's interesting because from what I've seen in videos, Henry Rollins seems like a pretty cool dude and a nice guy. Oh, yeah, but watch
1: him in the 80s?
0: Well, I've seen him in a bunch of movies and shows where he always plays a bad guy. I remember watching him in Sons of Anarchy where he played a white supremacist.
1: Yeah
0: who does very heinous things in that show.
1: Mm. So, there's that. Well, his character can be very heinous, though.
0: Lyric Bent originally auditioned for the role of Xavier, but was rejected because the makers didn't want to typecast an African-American actor as a drug dealer. He begrudgingly accepted the smaller role of Officer Rig instead. However, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise, since he was allowed by director... Darren Lynn Bozeman, to use his own ideas in developing the character of Rick, who was promoted from supporting to main character in Saw 4. How fucking interesting. Because I'm learning a lot more about the selections of casting and creative choices that were made in horror movies. It was one of the reasons why they had to kind of like rewrite the character ben in night of the living dead because dwayne jones auditioned for the role as ben and he was so good in his performance and audition that george a romero was like i want to cast him but i'm realizing like he realized when he wrote the character of ben he wrote it as if ben would have been like a white male so he had to kind of rewrite the role and it it just it worked out so well
1: it worked out better than what it was
0: Anyway, but I thought that was really cool of them to do for Lyric Bent. Uh, so the synopsis goes, On the hunt for the twisted vigilante and serial killer Jigsaw, Detective Eric Matthews and his team must apprehend the elusive murderer to rescue eight people trapped in an abandoned house before they succumb to his torturous and murderous games. One twist to this task is that Matthews' own son Daniel is among the eight people Jigsaw has chosen to test for their lack of morality, with nerve gas pumping through the house, every second counts. No, you said you liked this one, right?
1: Yeah, I did like this one, but I hate Frankie G because literally he was a goddamn dick, and just I don't know. I just now that I see that Henry Rollins could have been the character, I'm so pissed because although he would have been so much better than Frankie G, honestly.
0: Although I do. I read a bit about Frankie G as an actor, and most of his lines were improvised. Like, he made a lot of his lines up. hmm I mean, he really pushed hard to be that dick. And he did. And he was really good he, at it. It really
1: made me want to hate him so much, seeing him in that movie.
0: Yeah, because you know how like, when you watch people progress throughout a movie, like you have different types of character arcs. You know, you have your heroes, you have your villains, you have your rises and your falls.
1: Mm-hmm. With
0: Frankie, it's like he starts out pretty strong for the most part. But then he, like, over time, he starts to lose it a little bit. And oh, then he once he
1: loses damn mind. once
0: he realizes, like, oh, like the combination locked to the safe in the first room
1: mm-hmm.
0: is on the back to, of everyone's neck. Everybody has a number that fits the combination.
1: Yeah.
0: And he starts killing people left and right
1: to yeah, he, To get their numbers, he a motherfucker. Yeah. He is a
0: fucked up person.
1: He is. He's that motherfucker.
0: He is a fucked up person. I don't like him. But it most of his scenes or his you know dialogue was improvised, which worked pretty well for him. I would say his performance was really like he really sold it.
1: <laughs> yeah, he really did. Like when people look at people's acting, you can tell if the person's really acting or not. Right. And when you see him act, you're just like it just seems so real. Mm-hmm. It was kind of the same thing when I watched Fast Times at Richmond High. In the very end, the shoplifter tried to shoplift uh, Judd Reinhold's, uh little convenience store. Yeah. And the way that the guy was screaming at him to get the money out of the bank and everything, mm-hmm. he did that in auditions. He did that at the audition. Yeah. Scared the people half to death with with his fucking yell.
0: Yeah.
1: Like, it was that good that they put him in the movie.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's what it kind of feels like with this character right here. Like, that he really put his the realness out there.
0: Right. So should I get into the behind-the-scenes stuff before we get into the plot?
1: Um, sure, why not? I mean... All right. Yeah, go ahead.
0: So, the film originally came from a script by the director, as I mentioned before, Darren Lynn Bozeman, which was called The Desperate. After trying for years to get it made, but being told re- repeatedly that it was too violent... A company finally wanted to do it because they suspected Saw, which was becoming a hit at Sundance, might be a huge success, and they wanted to capitalize on that success. Some producers even described Bozeman's script as too Saw-ish. But before he was about to close a deal to make the film, Saw opened huge at the box office, and the next day, he received a call, and the producers asked if he could change it to Saw Two. Lee Winnell, who wrote the first film, was then brought in to help with creating the original idea into a proper sequel to Saw. Mhm. What is that? How do you feel? I mean cuz Lee Winnell, we don't really see, I mean we see his character at the end of part 2, yeah. but not alive. Mm-mm. And we don't really get to see him much of any in anything for a good while.
1: Exactly. So, it is intriguing, especially with all this, especially the writing process for this. Yeah. Cuz it was for another story, right?
0: Well, he wrote it in his own vision, but he couldn't get it off the ground because people weren't making movies like that until Saw came around. But But that's why it
1: went good with this.
0: When Saw was a mass success at Um, the box office, production companies wanted to market off of it, which, you know, in true Hollywood fashion, that's what they do, Mm -hmm. you know, and so they're like, well, we have this script. It's sort of goes in lines with the whole Saw theme. It's gory, it's violent, it's grotesque. Why don't we take the script, make it into a sequel for Saw 2, and then we can continue to make more money off this franchise. Mm-hmm,
1: exactly. Which
0: is what they did. I mean, it's not bad. Actually, I like you, I found this one to be very well written. I thought the whole concept behind this task, or test, or game, or whatever the fuck you call it, I thought it was really well put together. As we get into the plot of the movie, I think the whole notion is just fabulous. In a way, it really teaches not only the eight people in the house a lesson, it teaches the people they're the person that they're all connected to a huge fucking lesson. And one and I think in even today's society, with the way that police officers are looked at in the eyes of the public, is something that they could learn themselves. Because obviously, I mean, like I said, we'll get to it when we get into the plot. Eric Matthews, who's a detective, played by Donnie Wahlberg. And you know what I also realized too when watching this second movie? You have Danny Glover, who for the longest time in his acting career has mostly played cop roles.
1: Oh, yeah, he always has.
0: And then you have Donnie Wahlberg, another actor whose acting career has been primarily cop, cop roles. roles. Even in Dead Silence, he played a cop. Mm-hmm. I just think it's so interesting that these two characters or actors who play specific types of characters are in these movies where they are punished by an, in one way or another.
1: Well, then again, the actor who played Carl Winslow in Family Matters, mm-hmm. he's always played cop roles from Family Matters to Die Hard to even the spin off. The original show of the spin off, Family Matters, was Perfect Strangers.
0: He was in Turner and Hooch. Yeah. Where he played a cop too.
1: Yeah, so he's always been on, kind yeah. of, he's always been kind of like put into movies like written as a cop. Mm-hmm. So it it really does tell you there are certain people who were meant to be cops in films.
0: Right. I just think it's so interesting though that you know these first two movies they cast these big name actors to play these cop roles.
1: So Mark Wahlberg too, he played a cop more than once.
0: Yeah, but he hasn't been in any of the Saw movies.
1: Uh, His
0: brother is, <laughs>
1: yeah, well, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying in general there he's another person that's been a, uh, been a cop in movies,
0: so remember how I said in the last film the movie was shot in eighteen days? Yeah, this one was shot in twenty five days, and it was all shot in one building. so the house, the house that these people are in, it's all in the same building.
1: I wonder with each they, film, I wonder how many days they like really like go up.
0: Well, David Heckel, the film's production designer, took three weeks to construct 27 sets on one soundstage. Hmm. The bathroom, which was the main set for the first Saw film, had to be recreated for this film. Because we don't see that bathroom scene until the end of this movie. Uh, right? Yeah. The hall detective Matthews walks down to pick up his son at the security guard's office. It was actually a dressing room for the crew.
1: Huh. Yeah. Really?
0: A few of the traps actually worked. The Venus flytrap could actually slam shut, turning the key could cause the gun to fire, and the blades in the razor box trap could cut somebody if they were made of real metal. Really? Yeah. Do you know about some of those traps?
1: Um, no. Refresh me.
0: So, I don't remember the Venus flytrap one, but the razor box. So, Addison's character... She goes into the room, she looks up at the box, there's these holes that you can slip your arms into, but they're lined with the blades, so you can put your arms through, but to get your arms out would cause it to slice into your arms, and you would bleed out. But there's a syringe in the box, which he says in the tape is supposed to be the antidote for the nerve virus that's being emitted in the air. Shit. That trap was actually meant for another character that dies early on in the movie.
1: Really? Yeah, because like I said... Which character?
0: The guy who gets shot through the door. Oh, shit. Yeah, because remember, they find a key, and they use the key to unlock and open the door. There's a gun rigged and mounted on the other side... So if you turn the key and pull open the door, it the gun will go off and shoot whoever's on the other God, side.
1: That sounds like a Macaulay Culkin, like a Kevin McAllister thing.
0: I know, right?
1: It really does. I a just... lot of
0: people say who would win a fight, Jigsaw or Kevin McAllister.
1: Well, I saw the one where it was like Predator versus Kevin McAllister, and someone said, "But, but how long does Kevin McAllister have time to prep, right, for the traps before he faces Predator?" Right. So yeah.
0: I oh. feel like, well, you know what? Before we go down an ADHD wormhole, let's finish this up first, and we'll hold, we'll put that on hold for uh, a bit.
1: I know, but I just wanted to say this real fast.
0: Can I? Can you hold until the end? Like I said, a few of the traps worked. <sighs> mm-hmm. Do you want me to save the needle pit scene for later?
1: Yeah, I don't want to talk about it. All right, I hate the needle pit scene. Okay the worst thing ever to happen. I'll,
0: I'll get into the plot now, and when it comes up in the plot, we will stop and we will talk about it, okay? Uh. All right. Police informant Michael awakens in a room with a spike-filled mask locked around his neck. He refuses to retrieve the key from his eye and is killed when the mask closes on his head. That's the Venus flytrap. It's like an Iron Maiden for your face.
1: I love that band.
0: Anyway... At the scene of Michael's murder, Detective Carey finds a message for her former partner, Detective Eric Matthews. Matthews joins Carey and Officer Rigg in leading a SWAT team to the factory, which produced the lock from Michael's trap. There they apprehend John Kramer, the Jigsaw Killer, who indicates computer monitors showing eight people trapped inside a house, including his only known survivor, Amanda, Matthews' son Daniel, and six other victims, and these are their names. Xavier, Jonas, Laura, Addison, Obi, and Gus. A nerve agent filling the house will kill them all within two hours, but John assures Matthews that if he follows the rules of his own game, he will see Daniel again. At Carrie's urging, Matthews agrees to buy time for the tech team to arrive and trace the video signal. During their conversation, John reveals to Matthews that his main motivation for his games was a suicide attempt after his cancer diagnosis, which led to a newfound appreciation for life. The games are intended to help his victims develop that same appreciation. The group is informed by a microcassette recorder that antidotes are hidden throughout the house. One is in the room's safe, and the tape provides a cryptic clue. Gus ignores a warning note and uses the key provided with the cassette to open the door, which triggers a gun through the peephole and kills him. Once the door opens, they search the house and find a basement, where Obi, who helped with the abduction of other victims, is killed in a furnace trap while trying to retrieve two of the antidotes. In another room, Xavier's tests involve digging through a pit filled with syringes to retrieve a key to a steel door in two minutes but he instead throws Amanda into the pit. She retrieves the key, but Xavier fails to unlock the door in time. Throughout the game, the group discusses connections between them and determine that each have been incarcerated before except Daniel. During his father's tests, John reveals their affiliation to Matthews, who is a corrupt police officer who framed his suspects in various crimes. Uh. That, I mean, it's the most well-thought-out scenario you can ever write horror film yeah like i said in 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 light of what's currently happening in today's news and media and everything it's relatable but let's talk about the needle scene
1: i don't want to talk about the needle scene
0: which is funny because you now have a big ass tattoo on your chest of the dracula gargoyles
1: i know but that had nothing to do with it though i'm talking about syringe needles but
0: how do you get tattoos you get poked with needles
1: I know, but I saw that scene and just her just crawling through that thing and just things, just the needles just going into her. It. I felt like I was going to throw up.
0: Well, let's talk about the needle pit scene. And I'm, hopefully these little fun tidbits will calm your nerves. It took approximately 120,000 syringes to complete the needle pit sequence. So in that pit, that's roughly around the number. It took four days for four people to replace all the syringe tips with fiber tips for the needle pit scene.
1: Wait a minute, were they not real? Like,
0: Not all of them. Oh? Not all of them.
1: I would hate to be that actress who went through that.
0: Amanda Young. I know, I
1: would hate to be her in that scene.
0: Well, when shooting the needle pit scene, a handful of real needles fell into the pit, thus causing the crew to halt filming and find the needles before filming could commence. Therefore, they were literally searching for needles in a needle pit. But gelatin and a little water were added to the needle pit to make the syringes more movable and slippery. 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 Okay. Anyway... The doctors on Hi Everybody, a bad medicine podcast in 2019 called this film 500% medically accurate. This means that the film was five times more accurate than the Human Centipede 2009 film, which was marketed as 100% medically accurate and is used as the baseline for comparison.
1: Well, that's a wow number. It's a big number. It's a bi- yeah, it's a big fucking number. So that is if, very intriguing.
0: If the human centipede is the baseline standard for I've how... I've never watched that movie, so... But if, it, if that's the baseline standard for how medically accurate a movie is, and Saw Two is five times that, then that must mean production companies are doing something right with these films. Which, again, exactly. I have to applaud them for that. Mm-hmm. Practicality and realism is like one of the biggest things you can achieve when making any movie, including horror. Hmm. So the fact that a lot of people are saying that this is medically accurate is a huge achievement.
1: It really is. Sounds like it.
0: Anyway. Xavier returns to the safe room and finds a number on the back of Gus's neck. After realizing the numbers are the combination for the safe, he kills Jonas and begins hunting the others. Mm -hmm. Laura succumbs to the nerve agent and dies. And after finding the clue revealing Daniel's identity, incensed by the revelation, Addison leaves on her own and finds a glass box containing an antidote, but her arms become trapped in the openings, which are lined with hidden blades. Xavier enters the room and leaves her to die after reading her number. Amanda and Daniel find a tunnel from the first room leading to the dilapidated bathroom. After Xavier corners them, Amanda taunts him by implying that he will not learn his number because nobody will read it to him. Xavier responds by cutting off a piece of skin from the back of his neck to read his number. Xavier charges him, and Daniel slips his throat with the hacksaw. Having seen Xavier chasing his son, Matthews assaults John and forces him to lead him to the house. The tech team tracks the video source, and while... Riggs' team searches the house. Carrie realizes that the game took place days before they captured John until the timer for Matthews' game expires to reveal Daniel inside a safe, bound and breathing in an oxygen mask. Unaware of these events, Matthews enters the house alone and makes his way to the bathroom where he is subdued by a pig-masked figure. He awakens shackled at the ankle to a pipe and finds a tape recorder left by Amanda, who reveals she had become John's accomplice after surviving her first trap, and helped him set up Matthews' test during the game at the house, intending to continue John's work after he dies. Amanda then appears and seals the door, leaving Matthews to die as John hears his screams outside and smiles.
1: Yeah. Mm. that's in- That's intense. Especially yeah. especially her, like, I was just like, oh shit, she's become one of his deviants or, like, you know, minions.
0: Accomplice. Or an, or an apprentice, if you wanted to call it, an, uh, give it a different word. I always call them apprentices, but I don't know if that's even the right word. Because, obviously, as John gets older and his illness grows, his health declines, so he can no longer do certain tasks that are straining to the human body. Mm-hmm. So therefore, he recruits Amanda, who is a little bit more able-bodied, is a little bit more capable of doing physical things and activities, and would be able to set up and rig the traps. Yeah. Also, by putting her in the house with the others, it would ensure that things would continue to run as smoothly as possible. Mm-hmm. Which is essentially what happens, right? Because yeah. Daniel makes it out alive. And like like we find out, this happens days before they raided the factory where John Kramer was hiding. Hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. This is intriguing. Mm-hmm. And then this movie actually did really successful too, right? I
0: think it did. Well, I would say it did.
1: Well, look at the budgets.
0: It had a $4 million budget and it made $147.7 million at the box office. That is pretty successful. Yeah, that is incredibly well done
1: when you t- overtop your budget like that yeah you know it's it's a big deal
0: right and it's i mean that's pretty fucking good i mean i would say yeah. actually one of the biggest things i loved about this movie was the cinematography the camera shots i mean if you watch it
1: it's very gritty looking the way the the coloring on it too it's very well dark.
0: both movies were gritty looking but the yeah. way that this movie was shot i mean obviously we like we read earlier It was all shot in the same location in one building. Mm -hmm. But when you watch the movie and the camera pans from left to right or up and down, we think that like you pan from Xavier's face over to Addison's face. And you think they're in the same room, but they're actually in different parts of the house. Yeah, And I think that that style of cinematography, it totally throws you off. And it also builds tension because in that moment, like I said, there's a moment where Xavier starts to become primal in hunting down the others to get the numbers on the back of their necks so he can open that safe so he starts hunting for addison and when they pan that camera over from him to her you think that he's going to try to kill her but you find out she's in a completely different part of the house
1: well honestly you're either the hunter or the hunted so you gotta like you gotta pick which side you are right you know you gotta show that dominance sometimes and that's what he did like he was definitely showing that like he is the alpha
0: Yeah, but that's not even like a good thing to compare it to. I mean, here's the thing. When it comes to Xavier's character, he is a drug dealer who is, I believe, is also part of a gang, too, that runs drug circles. He not only, it's revealed in the movie at some point that he not only sells lethal drugs to people, but he also partakes in them as well, which is terrible to do. So he's not only poisoning other people with his supply, he's He's poisoning poisoning himself. And out of self-preservation, knowing that he's going to die from this nerve agent, he's trying to... I need to save myself, so fuck all these people. (laughs) No, really. No, I know. I get it. So he goes around and kills other people. Yeah. You know, like he Gus is already dead, so he's not too worried about it. But he knows that if he keeps his information to himself and doesn't let the others know, because he doesn't know how many syringes are in that safe... Yeah. In one of the traps, there were two and Obi wasn't able to get the two out in time before he died. Addison's box only had the one and then there there are others all over the house that they were never able to find because as time's going on and those two hour, the two-hour mark is closing in, people are slowly starting to die from this nerve agent drug. Mm-hmm. So time is really of the essence and they don't really have a lot of time to be dicking around. So Xavier's like, well... I don't know how many needles are in this syringe, or in this safe. I either let everybody know what's happening and we open it up and there's only one left and I have to choose who's going to get it or I can kill I can spare myself that decision process and kill them all and save myself.
1: Exactly. So he's got a choice. Yeah. To do either or. So Right.
0: I think the connection to that the fact that it's like there's there's eight people in this building. One of them is his son. The other seven are people that he wrongfully convicted. Another thing that I was reading about that it's alleged, I don't know if this is the actual part of the plot, Mm -hmm. but it's discussed at some point during the movie that Detective Matthews was demoted from SWAT to homicide detective. And the reasoning for that was either he was caught having an affair with Detective Carrie or... Mm -hmm. He was caught having an affair with another woman. And some people believe that Addison was the woman that he was having the affair with. And by, again, self-preservation, because he got demoted, she got arrested. And because he said, oh, well, she's a prostitute. So (laughs) he, he would have gotten in big trouble for that, but... Overall, he didn't want it to just seem like, oh, well, I'm just cheating on some girl or whatever. I'm trying to get information from her. So they hit, arrested her. Okay. And it's just, it's terrible. But yeah, I mean, I think that the that whole concept is pretty well thought out and well written. I thought the entire test thing, when you get to the very ending, it's all revealed that the, the footage is old. It's not showing real time. And Daniel's been in that room with them all along. And all those people are already dead. It blows my mind. Every time I watch these movies and I get to the end and it's all laid out and explained for you, it like blows my fucking mind. And I think the biggest tip-off for a lot of people was the fact that Amanda never really showed signs of sickness throughout the movie where people were like coughing and throwing up and getting pale and clammy. She kept her composure the entire time. Mm -hmm. So it was believed she had already had the antidote to save herself or was never really in any danger of being poisoned yeah so i think that in of itself tells you that amanda was there for a reason yes she was also wrongfully convicted by eric matthews but she was also working for john kramer to get back at him mm. but that philosophy <clears throat> is going to come into play in part three when we get into part two of the speed review franchise thing
1: fuck me well, that's going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Do
0: you have anything yeah. Do you have anything you want to talk about before we wrap up the episode?
1: No, not really. But What? I know I told everyone none of their business about the surprise of what I was going what we're going to talk about for my birthday. Mm-hmm. But I felt bad to our viewers, and I decide that I am going to say it. The movie that we are going to watch is one of my favorites, and we've talked about this more than once. I think in in different segments of our show, we're going to be discussing Monster Squad, which last year was the thirty fifth anniversary. I am super excited about watching this movie, and I'm excited for Leah to watch this movie as well. I think, if anything, we were trying to watch it yesterday, but it was getting more towards the end, and we had to go to bed. So what I'm going to do is when we watch it again, we're going to rewatch watch it. Mm-hmm. So we would have a better perspective on this. Yeah. Yeah. So other than that, yeah, that's what's going to happen. We're going to watch Monster Squad and discuss it because I've never talked about it on the show. And for my birthday, this would be a fun movie to watch. Other than that, I'm good on on anything to talk about. Okay. I was going to say, are you good too?
0: I mean, here's the thing. Going back to Saw, I thought it those movies were really well put together. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it was James Wan's film debut. It was Darren Lynn Bozman or Bowsman's film debut. And I think they both did really great jobs in making some really great fucking horror films. And I know like those types of horror films are not for everybody. I do want to recommend them just for the writing alone. is very well put together. Like I said, I'm a sucker for good writing and movies. Mm -hmm. When I first saw the the trailers for these back in 2004, 2004, I was 11 years old, okay? Mm -hmm. So, of course, nobody my age should have ever been watching Saw at the time. But even as I got older and people were telling me about Saw, I'm like, I could never get into those sorts of movies. They just seem like torture porn is like the term that a lot of people would describe Saw sometimes, but, even that was like far beyond what I saw when I watched the movies, mm-hmm. because there's a lot to it than just people subjecting themselves to this self mutilating torture just to save themselves like there's there's again, there's more to it than just that, and there's a whole philosophy behind it. There's even a whole like character dynamic that goes into it. And when we get into part two, I do want to talk about. The differences between John Kramer's games and Amanda's games. To me, it's a very pivotal point in part three that he says about murders or murderers. Yeah. That I think is really important. And again, it's like the biggest thing that he tests Amanda on. And it's really important. And I think it's it's really well laid out in part three. And I mean, I, I said this before with Child's Play and scream but this is certain become one of my favorite franchises and i like i said i haven't seen spiral i don't know if i'm going to be able to because spiral currently is not available on any streaming platform i do want to get into it i will try to find it and watch it but i'm excited to finish up this series because it's really good I mean, i could talk about saw for days
1: well that's cool we don't have <laughs> days but yes But for these episodes, we do probably have either days or weeks, so we have that. Yeah. Other than that, I think we should be good for our episode today.
0: What was that thing we were putting a pin on earlier in the conversation?
1: Uh, We're good on that. You sure? Yeah.
0: Did it have something to do with Henry Rollins? I don't think so. Or something else? No. You sure?
1: I'm sure. If you do remember, Mm. we can always put it for a second episode. All right. But other than that, this has been a... Very intense, interesting episode of Normal Podcast,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: especially when we're talking about Saw, because that's a very intense movie.
0: Yep. And next week we'll have part two up and posted. Did you know that we're recording this on Friday the 13th? Yeah, right? Yeah.
1: That's why I think this is actually perfect timing.
0: And on this particular Friday the 13th is the premiere release for Welcome to Horrorwood music video from Ice Nine Kills, which I want to watch, yeah.
1: Okay, you can watch it. See what you think.
0: Mm. I want to know if there's going to be another post credit scene, because the last one was really interesting. You remember that? Yeah. The shower scene? Yes, episode? but the only
1: post credit scenes I will watch is Marvel.
0: You're such an elitist. <sighs> I'm not elitist. You're such an elitist. Oh my
1: god, you're insulting me.
0: We forgot to talk about Megan.
1: No, it's okay. We'll talk about <laughs> Megan another time. Not during Saw.
0: I'm just going to say, we watched Megan last weekend with Carolyn. It was really good. We'll definitely do a review episode about it later, but I thought it was really good. I recommend everybody to go watch it before we put out a review episode. It was really good.
1: Yes, it was. It was actually really, really good. We're was, giving
0: everybody a head start, so I don't want to hear any bitching about spoilers. So, when so we shove it up stuff, your so. ass
1: and watch the movie. It's good. Yes, it is. It's good. I like it.
0: It puts that Child's Play remake movie to sham. Shame. shame.
1: I like sham better.
0: No, but it's a good fucking movie.
1: Yeah. So this has been a fun episode of the Abby Normal Podcast. I am your host, Colin.
0: And I'm Aliyah.
1: Signing off saying, i want to play a
0: game. As always, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We are currently on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Be sure to give us a like, subscribe, or a nice review for our podcast. It helps boost our show positively. You can also follow us on Instagram and now on TikTok.